I am enjoying this sermon series. Uh, it is not often that I actually dig into some of the minor prophets and <clears throat> because we are carrying this sermon series up until Easter Sunday, uh, I've been able to read several uh, different things. This week I grabbed another article that you'll get benefit from, I hope, uh, later in the series, one that was done by F.F. Bruce, just pointing at Zechariah and the passion, the crucifixion narratives, focusing on just that. And uh, I've, I've just really enjoyed this series that we are doing, uh, focusing on Zechariah that I've chosen, looking for the shepherd, which the, the, the validity of my title will come later in our series. Uh, this morning, I, I want to begin with a question. If you've been a Christian for very long, You've had times when it seemed like God had forgotten you. Even during those times when you're seeking to please God, trying to serve Him with all of your life. Times when you were not intentionally engaging in any sin. I mean, most of us, I'm convinced, had our periods of rebellion but I'm talking about even those times when we weren't intentionally being rebellious and sinful. There seemed still in our lives to be major trials. And additionally, the frustration was increased by the fact that our prayers seemed to bounce off the ceiling. And so we questioned just as I have questioned in my life. <coughs> Could it be that God's forgotten me? And to make matters worse, you notice that many non-believers who seem to be doing quite well weren't having a lot of the problems you were having. And yet they had no regard for God and His ways. Sometimes even openly bragging about their sinful ways of living. And yet they seem to be enjoying everything that life has to offer. I'm sure that a similar question was in the mind of Zechariah. His question was probably reframed a little bit though. Why should God intervene to save Jerusalem? Why indeed should God ever be expected to intervene for good in any human situation. In fact, to expect Him to do so, I think would be egocentric arrogance. If it weren't for the fact that we have the covenant promises which because of His unchanging love, He says, He will not break. Listen to me. I think today's message is an excellent reminder for this, the Sunday ahead of Valentine's Day. God 
is love. It's a simple definition scripturally. God is love. And listen again to the reminder, but now in the form of a question that I've quoted before more than once from our own son Eric's sermon that he did almost a year ago now. What if, what if we only believed his love? I like the reminder of the commentator Joyce Baldwin. Nowhere in the Old Testament is God portrayed as impassive, aloof, uninvolved with our world. The utter holiness of His love only intensifies the suffering involved when that love is rejected. And His desire to save men from the death towards which they are heading is something we only dimly appreciate. God loves us. And Paul tells Timothy, one thing that God wants that he can't have and won't have? Isn't that, isn't that something to think about? We, we struggle sometimes with the fact that there are things that we want and we don't seem to be able to get them and have them. And yet, Paul tells Timothy there's something God wants and yet he's not going to have it. Paul says God desires that all people will be saved. He wants everybody to be saved. But he won't have it because he also wants us to understand and appreciate our freedom. Our freedom even to rebel against him. Now, we looked at the question. Here's the need. Last week I shared with you how Zechariah begins with a call to repent. A call to not fall prey to repeating mistakes of those who have gone before us. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to attend a lecture at right at Illinois State University uh, with one of my professors at that time, Tom Ewald. Uh, he called me and said, I know your interest in counseling and would you like to travel with me? Um, I'll take care of all the expenses since you're a student and I have a job. I said, oh, thanks. I appreciate that side of it. <clears throat> we went to Illinois State University and listened to Dr. Albert Ellis, the founder of what's known as Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. It's a therapy that is action-oriented. An action-oriented approach to mental, that is, thinking, emotional, and behavioral disturbances. According to Dr. Albert Ellis, it's largely our thinking about events that leads to emotional and behavioral upset. So with an emphasis on the present, in his form of therapy, individuals are taught how to examine and challenge their unhelpful thinking, which creates unhealthy emotions and self-defeating, self-sabotaging behaviors. I distinctly remember how Dr. Ellis at one point said, 
And he actually paused and then said it and then paused again. Freud was right. Most of our problems are a result of our parents. And he stopped. And you could have heard a pin drop. And then he continued. But Freud was only right because we foolishly believed and foolishly followed the foolish examples that our parents passed on to us. That's the emphasis. That's exactly the emphasis that Zechariah is saying in verse 4 when he says, Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Now let me remind you of the setting. The Jews to whom Zechariah was ministering, they were struggling with the same issue. What's going on? Has God forgotten us? Why aren't we prospering? And why are the ungodly seeming to do well and the godly are suffering? They were a group of about 50,000 refugees who had returned from Babylonian captivity to a war-devastated land. And they believed that the exile was over. It had been 70 years. And they had been released. And yet they were surrounded by aggressive neighbors who opposed their efforts to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. By faith, they had responded to Haggai's message and they began to rebuild the temple. And now it's two months later. And God has raised up Zechariah with the message, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I didn't read that wrong. The fact that he identifies him twice as the Lord of hosts is right there in Zechariah. The Lord of hosts the military, strong, warrior image of God. And on the 24th day of the 11th month, five months to the day from when the people had begun to build, which you can read about back in Haggai chapter 1, the Lord revealed to Zechariah eight night visions to encourage His forlorn people. And this morning we're just going to look at the first two of those eight visions. So let's get into the text. The first two visions, I mean the first two verses, are the vision described. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Idu, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him 
were red sorrel and white horses. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Which points both to the origin and the authority of the message. This was a message from God Himself. Zechariah says he saw a man riding a red horse standing there in the ravine among the myrtle trees. And there were other horses and by implication other riders there behind him. And in verse 8 when he says, I saw the Hebrew word that is used there is used in what's called an absolute construction. Meaning I received a revelation. No question about this. And though the vision came in the night, Zechariah is very careful to avoid giving the impression that he had been dreaming. He was intellectually alert as his questions and interruptions will then prove. The rider on the red horse is clearly the prominent one. Zechariah sees, it says, a man. A man whose identity is not explained. And though we're forced to suspect that he is a superhuman being, it really doesn't say that, except as the vision unfolds. For instance, in verse 11, the writer is identified as the angel of the Lord. He rides a red horse, the reddish-brown color of horses. It's not, it's not that crimson red. And we're told that all is still in the vision. The leading horsemen and behind him the different troops of horses. It seems like their mission uh, is accomplished seems to be that they are waiting to be dismissed for the night. Most commentators agree that the myrtle trees there in the symbol symbolize God's lowly people, the Jews. They're not the stately cedars on the mountaintops. They're these myrtles, humble myrtles in a ravine that would have been under Gentile domination. I don't know if you're familiar with the myrtle tree, but it's an evergreen. And it can grow to about 30 feet. And it exudes a, a, an aroma, a fragrant aroma with its berries and even the leaves when the leaves are crushed. And from its flowers. Its branches, in fact, were used in the Feast of Booths. One of their holidays, one of the three important holidays. And now Zechariah is saying, here is this messenger there in the ravine among the myrtle trees. The horses Horses pointed to war. They pointed to bloodshed. White horses symbolized victory. Sorrel 
light brown or dappled horses, sometimes referred to a mixture of judgment and mercy. But certainly the horses would have symbolized God's activity in governing the world that was around them. And so in verses 9 to 11, Zechariah asks for help. He asks the interpreting angel what the vision means. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I'll show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. They answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. All the earth remains at rest. (coughs) The interpreting angel says that he's going to explain the meaning, but then it's the man standing among the myrtle trees who actually speaks. And the troops of horsemen were emissaries of the Lord sent on a world mission. Kind of like the Persian monarchs would do with messengers who were placed on swift steeds so that those could ride back quickly and and tell the, the leaders what was going on. And so it's an image of the fact that God knows. God knows about what's happening. All about the countries of the earth. Including even the great Persian state. Now as I said above, the prophet now refers to the man standing among the myrtle trees as an angel of the Lord. The messenger with his ability to disclose information normally hidden from men He's superhuman. And the angel of the Lord's intercessory question that we are about to read should encourage us as God's people that He cares for us because the vision is applied. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, says the Lord, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So what's the application of the vision? Well, the intercession of the angel of the Lord reveals that the return of the exiles from Babylon was not itself regarded as fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah 29.10. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah needed to be rebuilt. 
And though there is no specific mention of the temple, its reconstruction is also implied. Not only that, there's a phrase that's used in Daniel chapter 9 to describe the period of time needed in the plan of God to bring a remnant of Israel to the Messiah. That is, for God to make His return. Because they had not truly repented during the 70 years of captivity. Because they had not responded to the penalty for their sins. The penalty was increased seven times. In that verse in Daniel, the phrase is literally 70 sevens. Daniel 9.25, Daniel writes, Knowing therefore and understand, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Therefore, the actual duration of the period has to be multiplied. It's a number of units. And the best taken understanding of that is that it was going to be not 70 years, but 490 years. I've been there. I've had people say to me, well, I said I was sorry. Yeah. But nothing has changed. Okay. What did you do? Not just what did you say. What did you do to show that you weren't just sorry, but that you were repentant? There is a difference. Every one of us who is a parent, at some time in our lives with one of our children, said in frustration to that child, I don't want to hear you say that I'm sorry again. I want you to change. I don't want it to happen again. And while they were sorry that they had done the things that they did that caused them to be put in exile, they hadn't really changed. And because of that, the 70 years of penalty got multiplied seven times. And so while they had returned to Jerusalem, God had not. There are many first century Jewish rabbis who forlorned the fact that God had not returned to the temple. There was no indication of the glory of God in the temple. And though it was an angel of the Lord who had interceded in the previous verse, God's answer comes direct to Zechariah's interpreting angel through him to the prophet and finally is proclaimed to the people. The vision had lifted the veil which hides the unseen. The unseen spiritual world. To show that God is in control. And He is active in the earth. But it wouldn't have the specific comfort that the message in words 
given by the interpreting angel expected it to have? And that's why the, this oracle is essential to understand the implications of the vision. Having been given the privilege of seeing a vision, the prophet is now charged with the duty of proclaiming the message. He has to cry out and not keep the encouragement to himself. And it's a startling word. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. So wait a minute. Jerusalem, Zion, that's two names for the same place. But they had a different connotation. My name, my full name, is Chauncey Alva Latimer Jr. I never had any nicknames. So my parents would say, Chauncey this, Chauncey that. Now listen, because it's the same name. When I heard them say, Chauncey Alva, I knew something else was implied. Jerusalem and Zion were two names for the same place. But Jerusalem had to do with the physical locality. Zion was the name that had to do with the city that had been promised from, guess where? A night, a night when one of the patriarchs had laid down to take a nap with his head on a rock and he dreamed about angels ascending and descending. Because another name for that same place, Jerusalem and Zion, is Bethel. And that was where it was chosen. It was, that's where God was going to make His place. The divine jealousy is closely related to the divine anger. And listen to me. That's not uncommon. Unrequited love brings about anger often. An unrequited love involved God in deep emotion, which the Holy Spirit was not afraid to express in terms of human emotions, anger, jealousy, love. Having chosen Jerusalem to put His name on it, and you can go back and read that account in 1 Kings 8, the Lord could not merely forget Jerusalem. His election of the city endured in spite of the failure of humans which had necessitated its destruction. Have you ever had one of those times when a spouse or a child would call and they feel like they were in... This isn't going to sound very theological, but you understand what I mean. They thought they were in deep doo-doo. <laughs> And they actually thought that what had happened was going to cause a break in the relationship. Maybe it was an automobile accident. So they were afraid that it was going to cause the rates to go up and they were going to be responsible. And, and Dad, don't worry about it. I'll work and pay the difference. And everything 
can be calmed and quickly changed by saying, are you okay? I love you. Cars can be fixed. Bob Russell, tremendous minister of Southeast Christian Church that grew to be a mega church. His wife, Judy, had an accident. And she called him and he said, well, there's an envelope there in the glove box. And she got the envelope out and opened it up. And inside, with the insurance card, was a note from Bob to Judy that said, if you are looking for this, this means that you've had an accident. And remember that I love you more than I love the car. The anger of the Lord is now no longer directed towards Judah, but toward her enemies. And his theme is actually the his theme is actually the subject of the second vision, which follows in verses 18 to 21. That God's intention was to punish for a moment and then show great compassion that somehow was beyond their grasp. And though his purpose in showing kindness and severity to the nations was likewise to win them, they couldn't understand that. Wrongs suffered by God's people in the past are now to be compensated. And though building had begun a few months before, it would be surprising if no further stimulus was needed to maintain the effort and give incentive for them to persevere. Jeremiah had linked the Lord's compassion with the rebuilding of the city. And that compassion is present among them to bring it about. And so in verse 17, we see the word again four times. It's full of hope. Not only for Jerusalem, but also for the cities around the capital with its threefold promise of prosperity, consolation, and election. The first vision ends with a fitting climax. They're going to overflow with prosperity. To overflow. The basic idea expressed by the verb that is used there is that there's going to be an irresistible force working like a cyclone. Centrifugally. Like a tornado. Like a cyclone. For good or evil. Human history being what it is, the effects are often more often for ill though. But in Proverbs 5.16, the same word is used for a spring gushing out and sending water in all directions. And that verse gets linked with this. Jerusalem is going to be like a spring of water, which is going to overflow and bring to others in the neighborhood all of that prosperity that results from God's favor. And the Lord will again comfort Zion. In a time of deep distress, following the destruction of Jerusalem, there was no comforter. But now, there would be. And so, 
we have the second vision. A vision that does affirming. And the introductory words, and I lifted my eyes and saw, are used in the narration of three other visions as well. And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. By the way, those of you who read through Revelation with us as we were closing last year, have you heard many already? We're only in early verses. Have you already heard many of the images that are used in, in Revelation? Yeah. John's using images that they're familiar with. Behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. The meaning of the vision is pretty straightforward. Hostile powers, four horns, had overthrown the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And those, by the way, are explained in Revelation and in other visions. In Daniel, the image, uh, the image and the different parts of the image and how it represented those four kingdoms and the four powers... And though the returned exiles were vulnerable and had not even a city wall to defend them, any nation threatening Judah would itself be overthrown by the craftsmen. And though Zechariah might have arrived at the meaning of the vision without any help, he's careful to ask for an interpretation. Zechariah is thinking about the whole united nations of Israel. Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. All of God's people scattered in exile. The united kingdom. Just as he considers the whole pagan world responsible for the scattering. And the context shows that the nations are not merely cowed. They're defeated. <coughs> Now, you realize, don't you, that potential enemies of God and God's people, whether in the immediate now or in the distant future, they'll be of no exception. The balance of power among the nations and the wars that result when the balance is upset Though somehow work out God's purpose for the overthrowing of those who lift up their horns arrogantly against God. That's why. Though I am not optimistic about the future of the United States of America, I am optimistic about the future of the church and God's people. 
Though ferocious attempts to humiliate God's people, the church, and us continue, the enemies that we often sometimes fear will be reduced to nothing. Thus, this second vision adds a further assurance to the promises made in the first. So here's the challenge. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Somehow we need to know. Know. That God, who is love, does, can, will, bring to us deliverance and restoration. When it seems that all of the wicked are at ease and you're forgotten, be encouraged. Be encouraged by Christ's powerful presence. Be encouraged by His prayer for you. I just finished John's Gospel. Man, those, those chapters there, Jesus' prayer, chapters 14 through 17, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? What words of comfort. Words of assurance. And what greater message of love than the message that Isaiah proclaimed that the Messiah would return, but that He was going to be a suffering servant who would die so that you and I could live because God is a God of love who delivers and restores. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, help us, we who are often prone to falling prey to fears, frustrations, feelings of loneliness, Help us to begin to understand that sometimes those feelings, those thoughts will overtake us if we don't do something about it. That if we don't step out, and even though we don't feel like it, step out and do that which is required to show that we truly are loyal and trustworthy and forgiving and loving. Help us to commit ourselves to this end. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You know, I say that a lot, don't I, when I close prayers? Let me tell you this before we sing, since he's not in here. Eddie was sitting at the house with his mom and dad. And they, I guess it was at a meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of a sudden at the meal, at the end of the prayer, Jeff, uh, Eddie, Eddie says, and all God's people said, <laughs> shouts. And he shouted, Amen. Amen. <laughs>
Let's sing. Love lifted me. Let's stand together. to have us all here together to worship this morning and uh, those of you that have all faced forward for all of the service turn around and notice who else is with us today that hasn't been with us for a while it was snowing like crazy when I left Lowell ah. <laughs> it really was and then I get down to Snyder it was light. Yeah. But then get on down here, it's getting slippery. All right. Well, what a blessing to have Virginia with you today. So. Well, you guys know I'm moving down here whenever I find ground to build a house. There you go. There you go. So if you know a little piece of property, how many acres, Virginia? It only have to be but one, just so it has sand where I can grow vegetables. Okay. And have chickens and lambs. All right. All right. So if you know that, get with Virginia. Help her out. All right. Anything else we need to remember before we close? Yeah, Virginia. Keep Lisa Morrison in your prayers. She's my uh, future daughter, and she's still comatose and in this coma. And five months pregnant, the baby's fine. The doctor assures us the baby has as much kicking ability as if she was walking around. So we just have to get her out of that coma stage. One more surgery. All right. And uh, Jake, before you got here, I announced that Watsika Ford put out a thing that said something about the return. And it was about the fact that, that uh, RD got at home yesterday, Friday. He actually got home Friday and was sitting there in a picture on the couch. He and his daughter, each of them eating a popsicle. So, God has answered prayers. All right. Well, God bless you all. Our closing song is going to be Jesus Loves Me.
find good stuff, you find good stuff. Yeah, right. Like my coat, I found this gorgeous. five years perfect, ago. Perfect for today. I got it. There's so little holes in there. I like it. You like it? Well, hey. I would you can even keep that if you want. You want this dish? I have so many dishes. <laughs>
Isn't it? Come on, Corlin, and put your coat on. Careful. Dad Jake. He's just. Oh, you got your coat? Come on. You need me to help? Thank you. 